Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleague Julia Zoza with the Middle East Institute. And I'm Giselle Donnelly, also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guests today are Fred Kagan, um, who leads the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute, and Mason Clark, a senior analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Um, without any further ado, uh, I want to turn to Mason. Really, we are in the thick of it with, with, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine underway. Uh, what really is the sort of latest uh, information that you have about what's happening on the ground militarily and where the situation might be, might be headed right now? Absolutely. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. So I'd like to run through the four main Russian axes of advance as we're now in day two of the major Russian offensive and give some overall thoughts on Russian progress and what their seeming objectives are. I'm going to move uh, clockwise starting in the north uh, with the main fighting around Kiev right now. So two Russian uh, armored columns moved out south from Belarus on the first day of the offensive on both sides of the Dnipro River, attempting to cut off and likely now to enter Kiev. Uh, the forces on the west bank of the river marched through the Chernobyl exclusion zone, taking it from Ukrainian troops, and are now approximately 40 to 50 kilometers out from Kiev's western outskirts. On the eastern side of the bank, Russian forces have made progress after being temporarily halted on Thursday by Ukrainian forces at Chyaniv, and have now entered the outskirts of Kiev. We're also getting reports that there have been small elements of Russian reconnaissance and sabotage teams that have made it already into downtown Kiev, um, allegedly by using captured Ukrainian trucks and uniforms. And it seems that fighting is ongoing in the outskirts of the city. We also saw quite the drama yesterday on the airport of Hostomel on the western flank of Kiev with Russian airborne troops landing early in the Russian offensive to try and seize it, likely to open up a corridor for future Russian airlifts to cut off Kiev from the west. However, as of this time, after several counterattacks yesterday, it appears that Ukrainian forces have recaptured the airport and driven those uh, Russian airborne troops off. Again, moving east, we're also seeing Russian forces drive on Kharkiv from the northeastern Ukrainian border. As of now, that advance seems to have predominantly halted, likely due to lack of Russian resourcing rather than particular difficulties with Ukrainian defenses. Um, those have been elements of Russia's First Guards tank army leading that axis of advance that have seemingly stalled uh, in the outskirts of Kharkiv. We're also seeing some reports of a few other Russian moves through the northeastern border, but those have not penetrated to any real depth as of now. Down in eastern Ukraine in Donbass, we're actually very interestingly seeing little Russian progress. Um, we, they have not committed their own forces seemingly to a frontal assault through Ukrainian prepared positions in the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, and have instead been attempting to conduct an enveloping maneuver around the north to pin those Ukrainian forces on the line. They have not had substantial progress on that effort as of now. However, those Ukrainian forces are neither withdrawing nor redeploying willingly uh, away from that position and seem to be largely being held in place, which may in fact be the Russian objective here. 
Finally, um, and most dangerously or most worryingly for the Russians, is they've been making their greatest advances moving north from Crimea. This has been their area of highest mobility to date. They've been moving both west and east, breaking out from the Crimean Peninsula, and have currently, as of this morning, bypassed Kherson and are likely driving on Odessa. Um, they can pivot their forces in either direction, either to continue to the east to pin those Ukrainian forces against the line of contact in Donbass, or move towards Ukrainian naval bases in uh, Nikolaev as well as Odessa itself. Separately, beyond those four axes of Russian advance, we're seeing today uh, some Russian deployments of where they could send forces next. Elements, likely about a regiment of Russia's 76th Airborne Division, were spotted in Belarus. They are likely going to reinforce the Russian operations into Kiev following the failure of that airdrop operation at the Hostomel Airport. Separately, we're seeing currently unidentified Russian armored columns uh, deploying in western Belarus, likely to swing into western Ukraine and open a new front there, driving towards the city of Rivne, most uh, likely. We've been covering these and other updates in the war uh, in daily maps and updates over at the Institute for the Study of War, um, and we'll be continuing to publish those going forwards. But that's a brief overview of the main Russian axes of advance as we're seeing them. Mason, uh, Fred Kagan here. Thank you so much um, for everything that you and Russia team have been doing. It's been a privilege to work with you. Um, and, and thank you, uh, Giselle Dalibor and Yulia for having us on this program. Mason, what do you think uh, is, is likely to happen over the next 24 to 48 hours? Unfortunately, Russian forces are almost certainly going to make it into uh, inner districts of Kiev. And the key question will be exactly how much defense uh, Ukrainian forces put up if they do attempt to fight block by block or withdraw from the city in some way and exactly what sort of forces the Russians apply in response. A key decision point we're seeing here is an interesting decision by the Russians to not use all of the air and missile and artillery capabilities that they likely possess and that we frankly expected earlier in the operation. They seem to be either due to lack of capabilities and we misassessed what they could do or by conscious choice, not using the fire capabilities that they have, likely we think due to avoid killing Ukrainian civilians and possibly due to a simple misassessment of the situation that they would not need them in order to force a Ukrainian collapse. It's gotten a lot of coverage, and it's we agree that Russian forces seem to be moving slower than they likely expected on multiple axes, and they may need to alter their approach and shift to using these greater capabilities as they fight into major cities such as Kiev and Kharkiv, um, and particularly as Russian forces breaking up from Crimea approach Odessa, which I also want to flag again, appears to be the most fluid and dangerous aspect uh, of the Russian offensive right now, as they're making great strides there. And I think they'll likely enter the outskirts of Odessa within the next 48 hours or so if they continue on that line of advance. If I could follow up on the Odessa front, so to speak, and also sort of the whole structure of the Crimea attack. So as I understand it, you've got one probe going east and one going west. Do you think that the, the, the probe toward Odessa is sufficiently powerful as it now stands uh, to, to make it there? And if not, uh, are there reserve forces? Can the Russians do both, uh, do you think? And uh, if, if they run into trouble in the, uh, along the Odessa axis, um, do you assess that they have 
sufficient reserves to, to power their way through. So to sure. Speak. So Russian forces so far do seem to be committed primarily to that Odessa advance axis rather than pivoting east towards Donbass. Those are primarily led by Russian airborne troops um, and various Russian ground forces that steadily deployed to Crimea over the last six months. We are, interestingly enough, seeing actually the first confirmations uh, from anywhere in this offensive of Russian second line of troops already deploying into Crimea and then moving into southern Ukraine to take up occupation duties, at least temporarily, likely, likely freeing up those forces to continue onward. Notably, what we have not seen any deployment of yet is Russian naval infantry and the possibility of an amphibious operation. This is a quite literal, pardon the pun, floating reserve that the Russians have that we have not seen committed that could support either a drive on Mariupol towards Donbass or potentially to uh, support this drive on Odessa. However, before they commit those, we think the Russians will likely seek to ensure they have completely neutralized uh, Ukrainian naval defenses, which we have not seen at a large scale yet, uh, so as to not risk those forces in a possibly dangerous landing. Uh, but that is the main reserve that we see at this moment. Unfortunately, we don't have too much clarity on where Russian forces are moving within Russia itself, as well as in Belarus. Frankly, they're doing a good job of uh, imposing operational security so far, it seems, and we're getting very little visibility of where various Russian units that haven't yet been committed are if they aren't in the places that they've been as of January before this offensive kicked off. And I'd be curious to hear um, from both of you, I guess, um, how do you assess um, the Ukrainian resistance and what are we looking at um, from the Ukrainian side in terms of how much can they hold on to um, and what are the best and worst case scenarios over the next few days? So Ukrainian forces are putting up quite stout resistance. And the key thing that I want to emphasize is that Ukrainian command and control appears to still be intact. Um, this is, again, a difference from what we expected before the offensive of the Russian air and missile campaign was very, very compact uh, in the early hours of the offensive on Thursday. And it has enabled, one, much of the Ukrainian Air Force to stay in the air, and two, for their command and control networks to stay in place. We are not seeing fragmenting or Ukrainian units dissolving. They seem to be well-coordinated and have inflicted casualties and stopped several Russian advances. That may not last, however, if the Russians, again, do decide to commit those uh, greater assets. And we also very crucially have not seen the Russians use the electronic warfare assets that they likely have uh, to impede Ukrainian communications. We assess likely because they continue to actually want to message directly to the Ukrainian people, which is an interesting wrinkle in this that I can come back to later. But on their end, Ukrainian forces are, as I said, putting up quite stern resistance. They are using a lot of the uh, lethal aid that they have received from Western allies, particularly they're highly publicizing the uh, casualties that uh, Javelin missiles have inflicted on Russian tanks, particularly they, the Ukrainian uh, chief of staff essentially credited the defense of Kharkiv to those weapons, which may in part just be framing, but they do appear to be actually inflicting uh, decent casualties on Russian forces. One sort of question mark on this is exactly what stores the Ukrainians have, though. There's a worry that they may essentially be running through these munitions and other supplies too quickly. And that may actually be something that in part the Russians are re relying on, that they can wear down the anti-tank systems and Ukrainian drones and steadily erode the Ukrainian Air Force over the next few days uh, before, frankly, superior Russian numbers uh, and mass in these operations can start to turn the tide. 
But overall, the Ukrainian forces have put up um, a very good performance. One thing I will flag, however, is that there have been a few areas where Ukrainian forces seem to be predominantly attempting to defend in place, and that may lead to setbacks in the future. Most notably, as I briefly mentioned earlier, in the east on Donbass, Ukrainian forces seem to be committed to defending that line of contact in total. We have not seen any reports of Ukrainian forces withdrawing or redeploying to other areas of the country. This may be dangerous in that Russian forces likely seek to cut them off and isolate them um, from wider fighting closer to Kiev and the Belarusian border and any other possible uh, Russian axes of advance. Before we sort of switch tacks, I wonder if I could just get in a couple of quick um, further uh, uh, military uh, bits. Um, uh, so I guess, Fred, uh, yeah, if this were uh, 25 years ago, we'd be asking where the operational maneuver group was. Uh, is there a second echelon that uh, the Russians are sort of waiting to to commit? Maybe that's the stuff in Belarus. And kind of a second speculative question uh, about the Ukrainian response. What would everybody think the prospects were for sort of decamping the Zelensky government from Kiev to some part in Western, you know, someplace in Western Ukraine? It's so important for them to try to uh, maintain the flag, so to speak, uh, in this regard. Uh, and I, nobody seems to be pursuing that question, at least in the Western press. Um, I'll, let, I'll let Mason talk to the, to the issue of Zelensky. Um, in terms of the the Russian approach, the Russians have taken a very non-doctrinal uh, approach to every part of this, and I think it also helps explain the way the campaign has unfolded. Um, as as Russia team has been reporting for some time, um, the Russian organization, the Russian force composition in the north, in the western military district in uh, Belarus, on the axis toward Kiev and Kharkiv is not an organization that any normal military, let alone the Russian or Soviet military, would ever have put together for this purpose. It's an ad hoc collection of individual battalions tweezed out from a whole bunch of units across the entire Russian Federation. In the case of Belarusian operations, most of those units came from the Far Eastern Military District, which are historically the least resourced and least ready uh, units in the Russian military. Um, it does not surprise me, therefore, that the operations toward Kyiv and toward Kharkiv have been weird, uh, unsophisticated, and much less successful than we would have expected for operations on what presumably were main effort undertakings. The forces in the southern military district, again, as, as Mason and Russia team have been reporting for weeks, are an entirely different uh, story. Those have been largely organic units uh, that have either been there permanently or have been together and then sent as, as uh, entire regiments or brigades uh, to forward positions there. Um, and they have been uh, rehearsing and exercising at much larger echelon levels than we've seen in the Western military district. Uh, so it's not at all surprising to me that the most effective military operation the Russians currently have going is the operation from Crimea uh, north and then west toward Odessa and east toward um, Melitopol at the moment. Um, 
In terms of the, so I don't know, I mean, the Ukrainians say that the Russians have committed two thirds of the battalion tactical groups that were concentrated uh, in the area. Now, I don't think that that would have included the 76th, uh, the regiment of the 76th. So that's already an additional reserve, I think, that the Russians have committed. I don't think it was deliberate. Um, so what we've seen, it looks like, is a two is a two up, one back uh, approach by ratio, which is not, as you know and know, uh, would be the standard, you know, Soviet doctrinal approach to this problem. Very American. Yeah, it is. Can you maybe explain that a little bit um, in terms of why this is a surprise and what that tells you and us about readiness um, overall and about how much the Russians are willing and able to commit um, to these different fronts and why we see these disparities? Um, why aren't we seeing more than that? Why are you surprised, basically? Well, I should I should have been upfront in saying what I what I am saying every time I'm doing these talks, which is we were wrong. Uh, we, we, we made a forecast uh, and held to the forecast for months that Putin would not launch a full-scale invasion of this variety. Um, and we were wrong, the forecast was inaccurate. What, this, this composition, this force composition is one of the reasons why we were wrong. You've been observing this force composition and saying, well, if they really intend to do this kind of attack, then the, the divisions of the First Guards Tank Army, which is the, an elite formation, which is for the most part, as far as we know, sitting around Moscow polishing its tanks right now, those guys should have been the ones who came into Belarus and were the were this armored spearheads for this. They didn't do that. So we that that was one of the reasons why we uh, were uh, wrong in our forecast that they wouldn't conduct this operation. Why did this happen? Listen, I, I'm in the realm of complete speculation, but I want to offer this. I think it's very possible that Putin actually did not intend to conduct this invasion when he began this mobilization. I think it's very possible that he expected to use the threat of this invasion with the various informational and other hybrid warfare op operations that he had going on, including, uh, I think, planned and prepared uh, coup d'etat attempts that failed, that we blew, and uh, various other attempts to draw Ukrainians off sides and get them to attack uh, in Donbass and so on. I think he expected to be able to get what he wanted without having to do this invasion. And I think a couple of things probably surprised him. But keep in mind, this is all speculation and very little evidence for any of this. One thing is the Ukrainians proved much tougher than he expected. Zelensky in particular uh, turned out to have a steely core that I don't think anybody would have, uh, would have predicted, at least who didn't know him really well. And I think that surprised Putin. And then secondarily, the Biden administration did something that I don't think any U.S. administration has ever done. And that deserves a lot of credit, even though it ultimately failed, which is they played back a hybrid warfare information warfare operation against the Russians, and they blew every single one of those Russian attempts to stage a coup d'etat, to do major disruptions in Kiev, to have a provocation or anything. And so my hunch, but it's nothing more than a hunch, is that at some point, this mobilization, which had been intended as a show of force, uh, but not a preparation for an invasion, Putin decided, okay, well, heck with this. If the only way that I can actually get what I want is to do this, then we're doing it. And by the time he made that decision, it's possible that they really they didn't think that he had time 
to reset the forces that he had put in play here and just ordered the military to go with what it had and this weird disposition. The only bits, the only artifacts I can offer you as evidence in support of that are various leaks from our intelligence community that have been going on for some time that the Russian professional military officers have been very unhappy with the plan and have been pushing back against the plan and have been trying to update it and adjust it. And given that, you know, this was a war of Putin's choice, it was initiated at a moment of his choice. There was absolutely nothing forcing his hand at all at any stage here. Um, I think that it's, it, there's no reason for Russian, for Russian officers only thus late in the day to be saying, wait a minute, boss, this plan is a problem. And that, that is, that supports barely my hunch that, you know, Putin may have given a go order that they really didn't think they were actually going to be told to execute. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. So, but we are in a situation where uh, through the sheer force of the numbers, Russians are likely to overrun over, over overrun the Ukrainians, install some satrap in Kiev instead of instead of of of, of the current government, uh, and then the Ukrainians presumably will keep fighting on. I mean, it's a huge country; they are armed; they seem determined. Uh, what can we do to help? The president said. No American boots on the ground. Europeans don't seem to be in a position to to help directly militarily. What can we should we how can we be putting in place infrastructure, as Giselle put it in her piece today, to to support a Ukrainian insurgency against against the Russian occupation and, and, and impose further military costs on on, on on the Russians because ultimately if the sort of political economy in in Moscow is going to change uh, I'm not sure sanctions as implemented will have as much of an effect as a steady stream of caskets back home and maybe that can narrow it down to something that I think Mason was saying earlier um, that um, we are afraid that the Ukrainians uh, are running out of um, of munition. Uh, and I've, yesterday there was in the news the uh, Ukrainian Minister of Defense pleading with the United States for more stingers and javelins. We've seen shipments from the Baltic countries, but we haven't seen anything from the United States in terms of reinforcement. How do you, this little bit in peace, um, how do you, plug that into the greater needs and what we can do to help. Look, we, we the West, should be uh, providing the Ukrainians with everything we possibly can to help them uh, resist, to help them organize an insurgency, and to help them conduct one. We should absolutely do everything in our power to turn this into Putin's Afghanistan war. Um, and I think that the, we've got a lot to work with because I think that the Ukrainians will fight. Um, and I think that there will be a resistance and an insurgency, and we should certainly be trying to help that. I'm concerned about the, if you, it's worth asking the question, why would the Russians orient on Odessa instead of doing something else with the breakout from Crimea? And why would they be preparing an armored column as far west in Belarus as they are? Well, here's a, here, this would be an answer to those questions because they want to physically cut off Ukraine right. from Western assistance. Yep. And they intend to drive south from Belarus to the 
Moldova border, probably to link up with the goons that they've been keeping illegally in Transnistria all these years, and to secure Odessa and the Romanian border uh, and the entire northern Black Sea littoral so that they can prevent any uh, reinforcements, uh, munitions from getting into Ukraine. That's my current hypothesis looking at the campaign design that they've got going here about why they would be uh, doing that, um, which means that NATO has a very limited window if it's going to get uh, additional equipment to the Ukrainians. It needs to be happening right now. You know, that was the thing that really struck me most forcefully about the president's remarks yesterday. Um, after he made his case for the sanctions that he was imposing and why he couldn't do more and why, uh, you know, direct intervention was off the table. A reporter asked him, well, you know, how, what do you expect sanctions to do? And he said, we'll see in a month. Uh, you know, that is pretty um, cold comfort for the Ukrainians because where we'll be in a month uh, is, is sort of impossible to, to speculate about, but it certainly is going to subject them to the tender mercies of uh, Putin's army for an extended period of time. And it, as Fred, is, I mean, I would agree with your interpretation of, you know, the, the military facts, you know, so what's going to be left in a month? And, you know, the, the Ukrainians are not the Taliban or the Viet Cong. These are people who wanted to join the West and to live a European cafe lifestyle, to be free and prosperous and all the rest of that stuff. I have no doubt that they're determined, you know, that uh, that their nationalism is strong, their Orthodox faith is 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 very strong. But it's going to, you know, Biden, and, the, and Biden said basically, again, this is kind of a cheap shot, but I think it's kind of true, that he expects the Ukrainians to fight on while he reinforces current NATO front. So <laughs> he's asking the Ukrainians to die to the last man so that uh, the rest of NATO might have a chance to endure. So the timelines, yeah, you know, first of all, it sort of gives Putin, you know, free play for a month, so to speak. Um, and, and again, it's not a, spiriting message for the Ukrainian resistance, uh, especially if they haven't put much in place so far. It also underscores something that uh, Timothy Garth and Ash said on this podcast earlier, that uh, while there is a real clarity about Putin's strategy and goals and uncertainty about his tactics, there's at the same time clarity about the West's tactics. So we are incrementally tightening sanctions and applying ever more pressure in a sort of marginalist way, but, but seem to be clueless about our strategy and long-term goals, like, you know, thinking about what is really at stake here and what we are trying to sort of do longer term. And that's, again, well, I, rather I, depressing. I, I thought the Biden strategy I, I, was basically to preserve NATO as it is uh, and to take steps in that direction. Well, I, th I think it is, but I, listen, I, I specialize, as, the, as Giselle anyway knows, in speaking very plainly and bluntly. Um, and I, I think a little bit of that is important right now. 
Um, I've just admitted, as, I've, as we've, I've been saying to many people, that we were wrong. We, we made a forecast and it was erroneous. Um, I think it's time for the Biden administration to admit that it was wrong about something very fundamental. The Biden administration, along with many uh, people uh, who have decided that they don't want to study war no more, um, had the theory that really draconian sanctions and coercive diplomacy and other things like that could deter Putin um, and could affect calculations. We've had as, as thorough and pristine a test of that theory as you could ever possibly ask for. And the theory has been catastrophically invalidated. So I really do think that it's, it's time for the Biden administration and the people who've been driving this theory for many years to recognize that this theory has just been devastatingly crushed under the treads of Russian tanks and that sometimes you need to bring a gun to a gunfight and that if you're not willing to do that, then you should expect to lose. And I don't see that lesson being internalized yet. And that's that's worrisome to me. Well, to, it, to offer a fig leaf of defense, at least some of the responses that the administration is making are, 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 you know, are things that one would do under such circumstances. I mean, finally, they're moving some... He- heavy forces. I hope they're falling in on the preposition stuff that's in Germany. So if the strategy is now really to defend at the line of NATO, you know, we've taken a baby step in that direction. But as Fred, as you would certainly agree, it's not really responsive to the problem of Ukraine. No, and it's not enough to defend NATO either against a force of the size that Putin has just mobilized. And do we really consider the scenario, the possible scenario, more and more also building into what you, Fred, were saying um, on the west, the north and and, uh, south side of the west of Ukraine, cutting off Ukraine from the west? Do we really want to conceive and are we thinking seriously about will we have a new border between NATO and Russia? What if well, I think that's, that's exactly yeah, right. I think that, you know. that, that should change fundamentally the sort of calculation we are making, like sort of in terms of deterrence and in terms of protecting NATO's eastern flank. I mean, it's like he has much he will have had much more of a space for action and, and, and moving troops around and and, 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 and and finding the weakest links than before. Uh, it, it, uh, we've. We've gone a little bit over, but this has been a, a really rich conversation, uh, Fred and Mason. I hope we can have you back uh, uh, soon and and frequently as, as this situation develops. I, I would like to at least conclude my remarks with another bit of shameless promotion from uh, from the piece that I, I wrote. And that is in preparing for sort of the post-Ukraine realities, one of the things that we have to do and to get NATO to do is to take a playbook from the late 1980s, the Reagan playbook that was so successful. And that is in to give NATO some sort of counteroffensive threat, you know, um, digesting Belarus and Ukraine is going to be very taxing for the Russians, just as we held the Warsaw Pact states at risk uh, by the end of the Cold War, 
I think, you know, if you really want to flip the cards or begin to flip the cards or flip some of the cards uh, on Putin, that the, the attitude and the posture that we need to adopt across the Eastern Front from the Baltic to the Black Sea is one that's not simply a NATO defense in depth, but poses a threat that the Putin imperialistic project can be collapsed. Um, so I just offer that for comment uh, for anyone who, who cares to pick it up. Look, I, I agree with that. I would just say um, we, we, can, we can lose. Um, we can fail to do these things. We have no excuses if we do. The, the actual balance of potential power is so uneven here that if we, if the United States and Europe got their act collectively together and committed to doing what they needed to do to defend themselves and pose that kind of threat, they could absolutely do it. And Putin could have, would have no answer. This is not the Soviet Union. Um, so if we leave ourselves in a bad position here, it will be entirely our fault for not doing, taking prudent measures, which we absolutely can afford to take in this circumstance with much greater ease, frankly, than was possible to do even in the 1980s. Yeah, well, if, if 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 the past is a prologue to what's coming, then we probably shouldn't be holding our breath because this situation, you know, was in the making for a for a very long time, and 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 and, and just the fecklessness with which it has been approached is is astonishing. And I think that might be the sort of morose note on which to conclude this. This, this is episode. there's ever a poll on the Eastern Front, and we're just here to report the weather every day. From Dalibor Rohaj and Yulia Zosa and Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Many thanks to our special guests today, Fred Kagan and Mason Clark. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.